Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a London-listed investment trust. It's the Rights and Issues Investment Trust. And we're very kindly joined by Dan Nichols, who is the head of strategy for the UK small cap and mid cap team at Jupiter Asset Management and also the manager of the Rights and Issues Investment Trust. Dan, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Regular users of the UK Investor Magazine will be aware that Dan presented at one of our virtual conferences earlier on this year. So this podcast is really following on from that and adding some detail to some of the themes that we uh, saw in that presentation. But before we, we get into the details, Dan, please would you be able to give us an introduction? First of all, to yourself, as well as the trust for those people that aren't aware of the Rights and Issues Investment Trust, please? Yes, of course. Yeah. So um, my involvement in the UK small cap world uh, goes back to 1997, uh, when I started as an assistant fund manager with a firm in the Midlands called uh, Albert E. Sharp. Uh, And then in 2001, I joined Old Mutual Asset Managers and had the good fortune to work under a gentleman called Ashton Bradbury, um, who's frankly uh, a process uh, I think you still see at work today in terms of the mechanics of how we look at the opportunity set and how we think about the companies that we invest in. Um, I've been head of the uh, team, uh, small cap team that is, at Merion from uh, beginning of 2016, Uh, And then Merrin itself was acquired by Jupiter in um, 2020. Uh, And I I moved here and again, uh, I moved as head of desk. So, you know, upwards of uh, 20 years experience in the UK mid and small cap uh, space. And I suppose my team and I were really excited to take on the management of the Rights and Issues Trust at the beginning of October last year. So Rights and Issues, you know, venerable name and institution, if you like, in the uh, UK uh, small cap space. It was managed prior to Jupiter taking it over by Simon Knott for 39 years uh, and delivered very strong returns over that period and did so, I think, in a very distinctive way. Um, So the NAV, uh, the net asset value of the trust, currently around 125 million, um, around 23 holdings, as things stand, so a very focused uh, style of management. And that's something that was very much in the DNA of the trust when we took it over after Simon Knott's period of management as well. Thank you. So we're going to be discussing some of those holdings and the approach a little bit later on in the podcast. But before we get into the details of the trust, Dan, I think it would be good to, to set the scene, really, and take a quick look at the UK small and mid-cap market at the moment. Of course, it's been a been a tough period for the market. So it would be good to get your perspective and, and, and really the macro view on the UK small caps at the moment and, and really sum up why we are where we are in that market at the moment. Absolutely, sure. Well, I think, you know, I think there's some, there's some global... Uh, factors at play here and then there's very much some UK 
specific factors as well. So if I perhaps start with the global picture, because you know clearly uh, that affects markets worldwide, we are where we are, I guess, at least in part, because certainly post-pandemic, we have been in an inflationary period. Um, you know, inflation has broken out for all sorts of reasons, fewer people in the workforce, supply chain disruption. Um, you know, if you think about other markets, you know, agricultural markets for the sake of uh, argument, you know, um, some disruption in that space too. And clearly the conflict in Ukraine, you know, has had a profound effect on energy prices. So all sorts of inflationary forces have been at play globally and central banks naturally have had to act um, to temper those forces, to rein them in uh, and hopefully uh, put you know uh, the world in a place where we can continue to see growth, but those inflationary forces are tamed. And that process of rising interest rates has happened pretty quickly um, and has had a, you know a fairly predictable effect on markets. And I suppose if we think about um, the UK mid small cap space in particular, a lot of that world, a lot of the opportunity set has historically at least been in what you might term the growth camp. So you've had a lot of um, stocks trading on quite elevated multiples relative to history, reflecting a very low interest rate environment historically. As interest rates have risen, you know, we've seen a fairly wide-scale derating. Uh, you know, companies moving on to lower multiples, lower multiples of their profits uh, as that process has played out. And that, you know, that clearly has affected the UK uh, UK mid and small cap space, but I suppose markets generally. So I suppose that, that's the big picture background. If we think about the UK more specifically, I think, you know, we, I suppose the challenges that I've just described have been compounded to some degree by a couple of further dynamics here. So I think and it's difficult to be precise about this, but you know, there's no doubt, I think, that if we go back to 2016, the result of the referendum has, I think, confused um, global investors as to where the UK stands. Um, the exit from the EU you know, has proceeded over time. But I think it's probably fair to say that over that intervening period, the UK is yet to forge a definitive new trading relationship with the wider world. And I think for that reason, rightly or wrongly, sort of fairly or unfairly, the UK is regarded as a bit of a curate's egg um, for the time being. Uh, and I think there's been another factor at play. So UK investors, UK pension funds, UK private wealth managers just systematically have been disinvesting from the UK over an extended time period. And the reason they've done that is that they've just taken a more, if you like, global view around the way in which their clients' portfolios should be structured. So very loosely over that time period, you've seen you know, the typical UK pension fund allocations to UK equities going from something like 35, 40% to something like 5% now. So a very significant disinvestment and so if you bring all of that together, what that's broadly meant is that the UK mid and small cap space has undergone a profound derating over time. So it is rated much more cheaply now than it was historically. We look on a 12-month forward uh, basis, uh, the PE ratio of the UK 
small cap space, depending on exactly how you want to define it. So the UK, the FTSE small cap, trading on a 12-month forward PE of about eight and a half times. And over most of my career, it's traded on about 13, 14. So, you know, that gives you a flavour of the extent of the de-rating. So that's really kind of where we are and how I think we've come to be there. Thank you. So I just want to take the, the factors that you outlined there, Dan, and, and then look at the, the trust and, and look at the overarching management style mm-hmm. of the, the investment trust. And, you know, of course, we, we've looked there at the, the macro picture. So that really leads on to the question of how much of, of that macro picture do you apply to your selection strategy in terms of it being a more top-down uh, managed portfolio compared to the, the bottom-up of looking at, at stock selection first? How does that all fit in? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I referenced earlier in the discussion, you know, I suppose the, the team that I've had the good fortune to work in, and, and I, I perhaps touched very briefly on uh, the, 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 the process. The, the process that we as a team use has always been this combination of top-down and bottom-up analysis. So we, I suppose, philosophically believe that um, it's, it's really important always to try and identify what um, top-down dynamics are at play so that you can better position the portfolios to capture the prevailing um, thematic you know, trends within markets at any point in time. Because there will always be, I think, sort of key trends that you need to be aware of. And to a certain extent, that top-down analysis will also inform a view as to which sectors are likely to perform better or worse and why. So we've always had that dynamic within the management of all of the, um, you know, um, portfolios that we've run. Um, obviously, in the context of the rights and issues um, trust, um, as of last October, we inherited um, a portfolio uh, from, from Simon Knott, who, as I mentioned before, had run the portfolio for nearly four decades. Uh, and at that point in time, if you think about the makeup of the portfolio that you know, Simon had put together, um, it was... You know, uh, I think deliberately from Simon, but it was um, quite uh, tilted towards industrials to uh, distributors. But there were weren't really, uh, for example, there wasn't much uh, exposure to areas of the market like um, financials, like the consumer, like support services, and probably only a limited amount of exposure to technology as well. So. Again, we've taken the view that we probably tended to want from a portfolio construction process to have some exposure to most sectors over time. And really the only theme, if you like, that we've typically avoided as a management team or as a, as a team of portfolio managers is to, you know, early stage, pre-profit, pre-revenue sort of um, uh, you know, um, medical, you know, and pharmaceutical type businesses. You know, we've tended to assume that part of the market, but generally everything else has been fair game. So I suppose to come to back to your question, I'd like to encourage listeners to think about you know our approach to 
um, portfolio construction and the management of rights issues now as being very much a balance between top-down and bottom-up analysis. Thank you. So you, you did allude to it there in terms of the, the, the sectors that the portfolio was invested in, that, and that's something that I'd just like to to pick up on because you know if you're looking at that balance between top down and bottom up and we will discuss later on in the podcast individual holdings individual stocks within the portfolio but of course when you're balancing the top down to, to bottom up one of the big decisions is the sectors that you're going to be in and you and you did mention some there that had traditionally been in the portfolio and, and some that uh, were in there now but it's something that I think we should just focus on for a minute if we may Dan in, in terms of you know what were when you took over, that the main sectors within that, and, and how have you really moulded the portfolio to 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 how, the way that you see the world playing out, and, and which sectors have you added to the portfolio since you've uh, been managing it? Yeah. Okay. So I think, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the, the portfolio was was quite heavily exposed to. Uh, sectors like um, engineering, to electronics, uh, to distributors in particular. Those were, um, I think, areas that, that Simon felt uh, were particularly attractive. And we don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, you know, in terms of some of the new uh, holdings that we've introduced and some of the sectors and themes therein, I think one of the um, opportunities that has I suppose, presented itself to us when we think about the UK mid and small cap opportunity set now. I mean, I referenced in the opening comments the fact that we'd seen a pretty significant derating across a lot of uh, our market uh, as, a, as a result of rising interest rates generally. So longer duration, typically growth-orientated businesses um, you know, that have you know, over much of the 20 teens, if I can call it that, during that period of very low interest rates, you know, they had rated onto um, high multiples. Over the course of the last two or three years, we've seen a fairly profound derating. And I think that's presented us, in our view, with an opportunity to uh, acquire positions in what we think are really attractive growth businesses at multiples or at profit multiples, not far above, you know, the market average. So it's really sort of quite unique point in time where we think you can access, um, you know, attractive businesses on these sorts of uh, very attractive multiples. And in a sense, you know, it slightly transcends uh, sectors. I and mean, we can, as I'm sure you'd like to, talk about some of these holdings individually. But I think what we're driving at here is that across a range of sectors, we've been able to identify growth businesses you know, at these attractive multiples. Uh, so I think that that, you know, that that has been one of the key sort of standout features. And, you know, the sorts of areas that we have built some of these new positions in include technology, include financials, um, it includes actually bizarrely, because, you know, you, you'd think that utilities wouldn't be necessarily the sort of place you could find, in inverted commas, a growth business. But again, that's one of the new holdings that we've, we've introduced as well. So there's been... I suppose, you know, a range of new positions added that we think have given, you know, um, uh, an interesting sort of stock level dynamic, but have also served to broaden the array of sectors that are represented across the portfolio now. 
Thank you. So before we, we move on to discuss individual holdings within the, the portfolio, which we will do later on in the podcast, it would be good if we could discuss, Dan, for a moment, the construction. Because you, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there's 23 holdings within the portfolio. So it's a highly concentrated, high conviction portfolio. Why do you feel this is the most appropriate approach to small caps? You know, of course, that there are some portfolios out there which, which have many more, double, maybe even triple uh, the number of holdings that you would have in, in the portfolio. So why do you feel it, that is the best way to, to go by having a highly concentrated portfolio across just 23 holdings? And what does that mean for the, the portfolio? And what should investors expect from the returns from the, the portfolio over time? I'm, I'm just sort of looking back over the past 10 years, uh, 144% increase in the value of rights and issue versus a benchmark of, of 79%. That's that's across a 10-year period. But if you, if you look over five years, there's a bit more variability uh, in those returns between the benchmark and the portfolio. I think that has something to come down to, to that approach. It'd be good if you'd be able to speak to, you know, what that means for returns of the portfolio and why do you feel that's the best way to approach the small cap by market by having it highly concentrated? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, mean, I think candidly, there's a degree of chicken and egg here in the sense that when we uh, were pitching for the mandate to, to manage this trust uh, in the summer of 2022, the, the rights and issues board, I think, were very clear that they wanted a management team that was philosophically, you know, wanting to, if you like, uh, remain faithful to, consistent with the DNA of the trust as it had been, you know, established over a long period under the management of Simon Knott. And I suppose from our perspective, uh, while... Uh, within our current sort of Jupiter guys, we don't manage uh, highly focused portfolios in our open-ended funds. Over time, the team has managed sleeves of uh, best ideas portfolios for other uh, other sort of um, uh, other entities. So the team has the you know, real-world experience of managing successfully highly focused 10 stock portfolios over you know uh, a long period of time so you know we think there's a really nice alignment here in the sense that um and i suppose to touch on the returns point as well all else equal if you get your you know stock selection and indeed you know if you get the i suppose the top down element right as well but if you get the stock selection element right with a focused portfolio like this, then certainly over the longer term, I think you should legitimately expect uh, superior returns to come through. Uh, and I think, you know, that, you know, that hopefully or certainly in our experience internally, at least, was borne out by some of the, um, the, the best ideas, uh, portfolios that we managed over time. So I think the, the prospect of being able to deliver very attractive returns through the medium of concentrated, high conviction portfolios is, is something that we feel is realistic and, you know, we should be able to achieve. So I think, you know, it, it's, the, it's the marriage of those factors, I think. The fact that, you know, um, let's say the Board of Rights and Issues really were keen to 
preserve and maintain that approach. And we were keen to, I suppose, utilize once again the, the skills that we think we have in terms of uh, putting together focused portfolios, but with an eye to thematic balance as well. You know, I think we, we felt there was a real alignment of those elements. And, and again, we do feel from a returns perspective that, again, over the long term, we should see real value uh, for that approach. Thank you. So let's now move on, Dan, into individual holdings within the portfolio. And I think we should start with with ones that you've added to the portfolio. Of course, you took over management last year. So it would be good to get an insight into the types of companies that you've added to the portfolio since then and, and some of the ones that excite you the most. Yes, certainly. So again, just to set the general context, within those 23 uh, positions currently in the trust, Eight of them are ones are new names that we have added. Uh, and we've we've disposed of a what I characterise as you know perhaps a, a small tail of about four or five positions as well. And we've resized some of the larger positions in the portfolio. So I suppose from a a general overall architecture of the portfolio, what we're trying to I suppose uh, get towards what we're trying to put in place is um, a situation where every single one of the positions in the portfolio, you know, very much counts. You know, it's going to ultimately make a difference. Um, and I suppose just to flesh that out more over time, you know, I think we are, again, sort of uh, in the process of just working towards that. But I suppose you typically expect to see units in the portfolio range from at the bottom. Uh, and bear in mind, you know, we're playing across the, um, the wider UK mid and small cap space so selectively we are prepared to play in some, you know, some smaller market cap businesses over time as well. So very broadly, I think you might expect the range of positions to be from, say, 2.5% of the portfolio up to about 7.5%. I think that's the, the broad architecture that you, you might expect over time. If we think about some of the new positions that we have um, put into the portfolio, I think in aggregate, not exclusively, but overall the broad sort of thrust, the flavour, the sort of theme that I think we have introduced is one of structural growth at an attractive valuation. And the sorts of stocks that I think fit into that broad descriptor would be things like Telecom Plus, uh, Gamma Communications, Alpha Group International, and Gresham Technologies, and more latterly, Oxford Instruments. Uh, but we have introduced... Um, you know, uh, names like One Savings Bank, so obviously uh, a specialist financial business, but which you know trades at anything but uh, a growth multiple. It's uh, um, you know a specialist buy-to-let lender which trades on a 2024 price earnings multiple of about four times. So very much a uh, you know uh, inverted commas value stock you know, that trades you know. What we think is a very, very attractive multiple given its um, its prospects over time. So, um, I suppose hopefully that gives you a, a flavour of the broad thrust. And maybe if I can pick out two or three of those names to just try and I suppose exemplify some of the dynamics that we we have um, picked up over the course of a year or so in charge of uh, in charge of the trust. I suppose the first name I want to touch on would, would be Telecom Plus. So this is a, 
best described as a reseller, a multi-utility reseller to use the jargon. So it trades under the utility warehouse brand. You may have seen some of their you know, vehicles uh, darting around in your local area. Uh, but what this business does is to use uh, a network of agents to resell uh, domestic utilities, so to householders, primarily energy, but also things like um, telephony, mobile, and more latterly insurance. And the big picture attraction of this stock is the fact that as as we uh, as we're talking now, they've got probably about a hundred, sorry, about nine hundred thousand customers across the UK. So about a three percent share uh, of UK households. Uh, and, and again, in very big picture terms, we see no reason why over time, so on a three to five year view, they can't double that market share. And if you believe that, then quite simply, you know, this is going to be a materially bigger business on that time frame than it currently is. And I suppose the, the attraction over and above that is that the starting valuation of this business, I don't think is uh, particularly high for the growth that is likely on offer. So on a March 25 basis, it trades on a, a, a PE multiple of about 14 times, but already yield, so dividend yield in that year, still a shade over 5%. You've got a really nice combination of growth characteristics with you know uh, an attractive dividend yield as well. Um, so I think that would be one particular name I'd pick out. And the other, I think, would be something like Gamma. So this is, a again, a, a technology business or a telecoms business, which specializes in so-called um, uh, cloud telephony. So this is effectively using the, the internet as the medium over which um, telephony is, is actually sort of um, provided rather than traditional ISDN lines or the old-fashioned um, telecom, telecoms infrastructure. And, and, and quite simply, well, the reason we like this business is that it continues to take share from some of the slower-moving incumbents like BT, like OpenReach. Um, and it serves business customers from one-man bands up to medium and even large businesses and government departments as well. So again, in big picture terms, we think this is a business which can grow sustainably at low double-digit rates. And again, a December 24 basis, it trades on a PE multiple of about 13 and a half times. So attractive growth at, we think, you know, a pretty low multiple for that growth on offer. So, you know, again, big picture theme here, having, I suppose, inherited, inherited a portfolio which was very much geared towards perhaps more lowly valued industrial businesses, just trying to balance those exposures out through attractively priced but very strongly growing businesses as well. Thank you. So there, there was one holding which has really taken my interest, and, and that and that's Marshalls, and it's for a number of reasons because it, you know, it, it, it's a products business. You know, it's slightly different to the technology businesses, industrials that you have there that are providing a service. 
maybe not classed as a growth stock. There may be an argument there that, that it could be a value play looking at its growth figures and, and current valuation. You know, how has that made its way into the portfolio? And, and could that be a sign of things to come from rights and issues that you're, you're quite happy to broaden the net and, and look at lots of different companies and add them to the portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I think you've very much touched on certainly, I suppose, some of the sort of philosophy philosophy behind you know the sorts of names we would consider. So, to be clear, in terms of you know, if we think about our UK mid and small cap opportunity set. There's very little which is you know ultimately out of bounds. We, I think, pragmatic, and we will consider uh, you know everything on its own merits. Um, so I suppose why Marshalls or, you know, what, what particularly uh, attracted us to Marshalls? Firstly, it's a market-leading business in our view. So it is the UK leader in um, blocks and uh, paving, um, you know, if in, the, in the construction space. And more latterly, uh, via acquisition, it bought a business called Marley, which is, again, the UK leader in uh, roofing system. So, you know, tiles and, and, and the like, but it also has uh, a uh, solar panel business that goes with that. So um, we're attracted by the leading position. But, you know, predictably, or I suppose understandably, given what's happened uh, to construction markets generally over the course of the last two or three years, firstly with the pandemic, but also then I think with challenges resulting from what's happened in what's happened to interest rates generally, challenges within house building markets and construction markets, this business is, is currently in a cyclical downturn. So I suppose one of the attractions of the rights and issues structure, it being obviously closed-ended, is that we can selectively, I think, afford to take a uh, maybe slightly opportunistic but long-term view about uh, certain businesses. And what we identify in Marshalls is that, you know, very broadly, profits are probably slightly less than half what they were now at, at peak in 2019. Um, so we do think over the course of the next two, three, four, perhaps it's impossible to be totally precise about this, but there's every reason to believe that as market conditions begin to recover, then Marshall's profits also should recover. And if Marshall's can attain once more the sort of mid-teens PE multiple that it traded on, well, if you look at you know uh, the sorts of earnings it uh, delivered in 2019, very roughly about 30 pence of earnings, you put that on a, a mid-teens multiple that it you know, historically has traded on, we think there's a really nice opportunity to find well-managed business that can, you know, see earnings recover um, really very uh, strongly over the course of the next two or three years. And with re-rating, you know, we'd broadly see the opportunity for that share price to double over that time period. But again, very difficult to be, you know, mechanistic, precise about exactly how that plays out. But within... Um, the rights and issues structure, I think, is a really nice complement to some of the other sort of ideas uh, that we've introduced to the portfolio. So perhaps some of the more steadily growing structural growth plays that we've introduced. 
Thank you very much. So to finish off now, Dan, we, we were talking at the beginning of the podcast about the, the macro picture and the environment for UK small and mid caps at the moment. So for the final point, I'd like to ask you about the coming 12 to 24 months, again, from a, from a macro perspective, and what your view is on the outlook for the market, the small cap market, and what do you feel are the catalysts that we need to see to really fire this market back up again? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I mean, I think, you know, we're always, um, I suppose, looking for, hoping for catalysts. I think the, the, the most obvious reason to be positive on the UK mid and small cap space is perhaps one we've already touched on, and that's valuation. Um, valuations have contracted very materially over the course of the last six, seven years. And I think in part, again, as I referenced before, fairly or unfairly, the UK has been regarded as something uh, of an anomaly. You know, we look at developed world economies generally. And I think more latterly, the evidence is beginning to build that actually, notwithstanding some of the political changes and perhaps some of the uh, political uh, turbulence that we've had over the course of the last, you know, uh, six or seven years with, what, five prime ministers since 2016 and a lot of ministerial changes uh, to boot as well. Actually, if you look at some of the more recent data, that would suggest that the UK is continuing to perform broadly in the pack with the rest of, say, the G7 in terms of both inflation and growth. And I think to the extent that that's... Uh, data picture, if you like, continues to build out. I see no reason why the UK should continue to be uh, valued at a you know material premium to the rest of the developed world, and that that process is not going to happen in an instant. But I think it's more of a it's a drip feed. You know, the more we get that data that suggests we're not so very different, I think the more the marginal investor begins to look back at the UK and thinks, okay. You know, there's no reason why uh, this you know, particular market should continue to be rated at the sort of discount that currently prevails. And I think, you know, if we think about some of the uh, more sort of tangible measures of late, um, you know, the recent autumn statement, you know, I think has taken or seen some uh, useful uh, initiatives that help the supply side of the economy. You know, if we think about uh, the, the generous uh, capital allowance program, which has now been, if you like, sort of made permanent. You know, good reasons to believe why, over time, that should enhance the productive capacity of the UK economy. And even in recent days, you know, we've seen the government launch a much more concerted initiative to attract foreign direct investment, which has been notably uh, less potent. Um, um, for the economy over recent years, as you know, um, as it was, you know, pre the referendum vote. So, I think plenty of reasons to believe that, as I say, the, the UK will increasingly be perceived as part of the mainstream uh, of the developed world. And to the extent that you know that is the case, I think we can expect you know a re-rating to come through as well. And I think as a final observation, um, clearly we're likely to have an election over the course of calendar 24, as things currently stand at least, 
it seems likely that we will have a change of government. It's difficult to argue that um, elections are necessarily uh, positive catalysts in themselves. But I think what we can legitimately point to here is the idea that um, the Labour Party, I think, have signalled fairly clearly that they're going to adopt a conventional and arguably pretty technocratic approach to trying to manage the economy. So I don't think there are reasons, again, why a change of government should cause the UK to be viewed as outside of the mainstream of the developed world. So again, this is going to be a gradual process, but I see you know, a real opportunity for the UK mid and small cap space to re-rate positively over time. And we think the combination of attractively valued structural growth and, you know, industrial, you know, um, more economically sensitive businesses on low starting valuations represents an attractive combination in the rights and issues trust. Uh, so we feel pretty good about prospects over the course of the next 12 months. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dan. Just a note to listeners, do check out the notes this podcast because there will be a link through to the rights and issues website where you'll be able to find further information of the top 10 holdings and download the fact sheets. But there will also be a link through to the recent presentation that Dan gave at the UK Investor Magazine Virtual Investment Trust Conference. That's in the video section of the UK Investor Magazine website, as well as a link in the notes to this podcast. Dan, thank you for being on the podcast today. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.